Okay. If you have your Bible, open and find the book of Revelation, chapter 16. So we're picking back up in our study through Revelation. We took a week off last week from this study. Uh, a couple of reasons. One, because Adventure Weekend was last weekend. And, and also because for reasons I still have not entirely figured out, we're a little bit ahead of schedule on, on uh, getting through this study by the end of the semester. So we got some breathing room. We took a break last week to look at a passage in Hebrews 12 because the theme of Venture Weekend was the love of God. And we looked at a great passage in Hebrews 12 and thought about how, how the, the love of God, how God displays demonstrates his love for us even in in this life when we are under his his discipline his discipline is an expression of his love for us so hope that was helpful to some of you if you were here um today we come back to revelation in chapter 16 in this chapter will bring us to the close of the fifth of the seven sections in revelation this is a section that just started in the last chapter chapter 15 um, and that chapter was basically entirely preparatory for the chapter we're going to look at today. Um, I think that last chapter was only like eight verses. Yeah, very short. I've told you a number of times that as we move deeper into the book of Revelation, um, the different sections will, will give more exclusive focus to uh, the events just before the return of Christ, as well as descriptions of the return of Christ um, and of the final judgment and of the end of all things. Up to this point, the different sections in Revelation have been descriptive of the whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming. This whole church age, I mean, it always begins with some reference to the first coming of Christ. It ends with a description of the end of all things, but it, it, there's a lot more focus in the middle of time period in which we live right now. As you move deeper into the book, um, you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to skip a lot of what, we, what we're dealing with right now, and it just moves straight to, almost exclusively to, the end of all things and, and the return of Christ. And this is the first section we've come to that illustrates that, but it's going to be the norm for the remainder of the book. Um, what we'll see here in chapter 16 is a description of the events just prior to the return of... Well, I don't want to say just prior. I mean, if you put a fine-tooth comb on it, I'd say just prior. But all of the things are going to be associated with the return of Christ and the, the pouring out of the bowls of the wrath of God. And the seventh bowl is the return of Christ itself. So these bowls, um, the seven bowls of God's wrath, that's the primary focus of this section of Revelation. These, these bowls, the seven bowls are are pretty closely related to the seven trumpets we saw early, earlier in the book of Revelation. If you recall, when we looked at the trumpets, this was uh, around chapters 8 and 9 or 7 or 8, um, these seven trumpets, I said at that, at that time, these trumpet, the trumpets represented partial sort of preliminary uh, acts of judgment that God peppers out on the world throughout, throughout history. So how can I tell if, I don't know if we can tell if, oh, that was, you know, precisely an act of God's judgment. I don't know if we're in a position to say it was, but the Bible teaches that God does send partial and preliminary acts of ju his judgment into the world throughout history and that the goal is 
Um, and, they're, and they're sort of continuously active throughout the world until Jesus comes back. And the, the, there's a, there's a, they're meant to be warnings to us that cause us to see our evil for what it is, repent of our sin, put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the, 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 these bowls are related to that in a sense, but there's an, the, these bowls are an intensification of what we saw with the, with the trumpets. What does that mean? In what way is it an intensification? Well, it's in the very nature of them. I told you when we, when we studied the trumpets that you can almost tell the difference between the trumpets and the bowls just by the very names of what they, what they are and the symbols of what, is, what are used. That trumpets blow and trumpets sound a warning and, uh, and, and that meant that when these, these partial judgments that God peppers into the world throughout history, they are meant as warning signs, which meant associated with them is an opportunity for repentance. Um, bowls, however, are simply poured out. And, 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 and with, the, with the seven bowls of God's, God's judgment, um, these are the, the, the very imagery indicates a greater finality to them. Um, there's a finality about these judgments with no further opportunity for repentance. We'll read this chapter in just a second, but uh, you'll see a number of verses in this chapter when we do read it that talk about how the unbelievers, even when the bowls are poured out, did not repent. I don't, I mean, you could read this and say there was an opportunity for repentance, but the way I read it is um, these statements that are in this chapter about that the, they did not repent when the, bowl, the, the judgment of the bowls were poured out simply illustrate the blinding hardness of sin on our hearts um, apart from the grace of God. All that to say, I, I believe the things we're going to read in this chapter, they're quite sobering, and they're describing the judgments of God against the unrepentant and the unbelieving culminating in the second coming of Jesus. So let's read the passage, and you'll see what I mean, and, and then we'll dive into it. Revelation 16, beginning in verse 1. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple, telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became the blood of a corpse, and every living thing that died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you gave them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for, the pain, for their pain and sores. 
They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up it, to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place in Hebrew that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Father, would you give us help to see uh, what you would have us to see in this passage this morning? This, what we just read is, is, uh, is sobering, but we know that it is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And so, uh, as we think about these, these things, Lord, would you give us eyes to see the truth? It's... Revelation is not an easy book, and uh, we need your help to understand your word. Would you give us eyes to see the truth? Would you give us minds to understand what John is saying by the help of the Holy Spirit here? Would you give us hearts to embrace the truth that you uh, impress upon us today? Would you give me the help that I need to teach and give us all wills to obey, give us ears to hear? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you're taking notes, um, there are three main things I want us to focus on in this passage. First, and obviously, um, are the seven bowls of judgment. That's the first thing we're going to think about, just the seven bowls of judgment that are being poured out. Obviously, that is the main point, not only of this chapter, but of this whole section in Revelation. We don't have time to focus on every detail of these bowls, even if we did have time. I'm not convinced that we have enough clarity in them to know with precision what each bowl is intending to, what it, what it will literally look like when it happens. I just don't know if we were told enough. But, but that is not to say that we can't at least see the big picture of what's going on with these bowls. And we'll look at it as much as we can. So first is the seven bowls of judgment. The second thing I want us to see from this chapter, which I've already made reference to, is the strength of sin. The strength of sin. I, 
this, this, this passage could not be any clearer on the exceeding sinfulness and stubbornness and hardness of sin in our hearts. Um, if the bowls are the primary emphasis of this chapter, the, the strength of sin in the human heart is right there behind it. And thirdly and finally, we'll note at the very end, the seventh bowl, the victory of Christ. That being said, let's take a closer look at the chapter and think first about the seven bowls. So very clearly, these bowls are presented in this chapter as judgments coming on, on the earth, coming from God himself. So if you look in verse 1, the, 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 the voice that is commanding these, these bowls to be poured out, verse 1 tells us it comes from the temple. I heard a loud voice from the temple. Um, which is symbolic of the very presence of God. We saw a similar language in the last chapter, in chapter 15, where a voice was coming and, and the presence of God was described as the sanctuary of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And now it's the, it's the temple. Um, so God himself is commanding these bowls to be poured out, and they are described as bowls, in verse 1, as bowls of the wrath of God. Um, and I would say this, from the very first verse, you're given indication that these judgments are more universal in nature. That's going to contrast them with the trumpets that we saw earlier, which were partial, preliminary. These are more universal. And in verse 1, these, ju these judgments are to be poured out, quote, on the earth. And as we move through the chapter, it will become increasingly clear, and I will try to point out at least one example more specifically of how these judgments are not partial. These judgments are not preliminary like the trumpets were. These are universal. These are final. But once, they, once the command is given, the bowls begin to be poured out. And uh, I don't know if you noticed it when we read it together. Maybe you did. I hope you did. I hope you're thinking this way when we read. But these, these bowls, the descriptions that are given to the bowls that, as they're poured out, they have a they have a distinct Old Testament flavor to them. Uh, and I'm, I'm referring to one particular prominent Old Testament event. Does anybody, can anybody guess which one is in view here? I'm thinking the, the Exodus plagues. I mean, literally, these bowls are, are referred to in verse 9 as plagues. <laughs> and, uh, and these plagues... They, 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 the, the, so many of these bowls are, are very distinct allusions to the plagues that were sent against the Egyptians during, and, and, and against Pharaoh during the Exodus event. And uh, on, the, on one hand, that shouldn't be surprising at all because um, Revelation is almost continually drawing on the Old Testament. I mean, you cannot, it is impossible to understand the book of Revelation without help from the Old Testament. There's so much imagery it's pulling from. So many quotations from the Old Testament, but the Exodus event in particular. And that's especially clear here. So let me just get a little more specific. In verse 2, um, the first bowl is poured out. It's symbolically referred, it's described as painful sores. I don't think that's literal. I don't think he's literally sending painful sores. I, I, you know, it's symbolic of something. I'm not exactly sure what. But even describing it symbolically as painful sores calls your mind back to Exodus chapter 9. When Exodus 9.10 said that God caused boils to break out in sores on man and beast in 
Egypt. In the third bowl, poured out in verse 4, it says that the rivers and the springs of water became blood, which calls your mind back to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus 7.20, Moses took his staff and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water of the Nile turned to blood. And while we're in verse 4, by the way, here's another example of how you see that these bowls are different than the, than the trumpets. The third, the third bowl is very similar to the third trumpet. Um, that was in chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. The third trumpet was a, was a judgment described symbolically on a judgment on the water. But with the trumpet, if you, t- if you had turned back to chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, that judgment, uh, that trumpet judgment says it was only on, quote, a third of the rivers and a third of the waters. There is no limit indicated to this judgment here in the bowl. But in the fifth bowl, in verse 10, it says everything was plunged into darkness. And that, that calls your mind to Exodus chapter 10, where we read about the ninth plague in verses 21 and 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 10, 21 and 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt, three days. And then the sixth and seventh bowls, they have longer descriptions than the, than the first five. But if you look at, 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 at part of the sixth bowl here, <clears throat> in verse 13, you read that coming out of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits... Like frogs. Now, if you don't have an Old Testament, if you're not, if they're not carrying you back, if you don't have that in your mind, that's going to be like, that is weird. Frogs? But that reference to frogs ought to draw your mind back to the second plague in Exodus, chapter 8. Exodus 8, 6. Frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And I'll come back to this point in, 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 a, in a later point this morning, but it's another allusion to the Exodus plagues. And finally, if you look down at the seventh bowl, in verse 21, you have the symbolic description of great hailstones that fell on the people. That should call your mind back to the seventh plague, Exodus 9, 23, when the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. We'll come back to the seventh bowl in just a minute, but why am I... Why am I belaboring this point about the comparisons between and the allusions to the Exodus plagues? Well, first of all, I don't know that there's a way for us to know with precision what each of these bowls literally represents, precisely what kind of literal judgment is being poured out when they are poured out. But I don't think that leaves us uh, in a place where we can know nothing about what is being communicated here. So what is the point? Here's my take. Think back to that Think back to the Exodus. Think back to the plagues that were, that were sent out against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians. Those plagues in Egypt, when God was redeeming his people out of slavery, those plagues in Egypt 
were intended to be so cataclysmic, so cataclysmic that in a sense, to an Egyptian, it, it felt like and it symbolized the whole of creation coming undone. I mean, over, creation itself unthrowing. And just, just imagine how utterly helpless. If you were Pharaoh, if you were an Egyptian in that day, how utterly helpless would it have felt light becomes darkness, water becomes blood, livestock die, inescapable hail and frogs and gnats and flies and locusts and sores all over your body. And above all else, the firstborn in every home died. Nothing was certain. Light, water, food, health, and life itself. Everything was falling apart. And in the same way, these seven bowls, using that same language from that Exodus event, are intending to communicate to us the same thing. But instead of being limited to Egypt, it's the whole of creation. It's all the earth. These bowls of judgment are an absolute overthrowing of the whole, whole of creation at the second coming of Christ. I believe that is most likely the main point indicated and, and, and conveyed by these bowls, no matter what each one individually might be intending to communicate. The judgment God will pour out at the return of Christ will be a universal upending of all of creation. But let's notice, too, another point here which I said is how hardened and how deceived and how blind sin can make us, the strength of sin. First of all, notice again the, the song that they sing in the middle of the chapter in verses 4 to 7. It's a, it's a repetition of what we saw in the last chapter where they also sang a song much like this one. Uh, the theme being how righteous and just God is in doing, doling out all of these these. Um, these judgments, verse 5, just are you, O holy one. And I pointed this out two weeks ago, but incidentally, again, notice that God in verse 4 is referred to as the one who is and who was. It leaves off and who is to come because there is no more to come. This is the end of all things. Verse 7, just and true are your judgments. And then right in the middle of the song, verse 6 exclaims, it is what they deserve. So just like we noted when we looked at the last chapter where we saw the same thing, there will be no questioning the justice of God's judgment. In chapters 15 and 16, these judgments are declared to be just and true and righteous and holy but how do those being judged respond in chapter 16? We're told three times, and anytime you see something repeated like this, this many times in a passage, it's important. Look for repeated words and phrases and ideas. We're told three times that they cursed the name of God, and they did not repent or give him glory. We see that in verse 9. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they, were, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues, they did not repent and give him glory. We see it in verse 11. They cursed the God of heaven 
for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And again, in the very last verse of the chapter, verse 21, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. These judgments were more intense and severe than the, the trumpets earlier in the book, but these, these statements indicate that even, even, um, even here, when they realize that all opportunity for repentance is gone, they still don't express any, any type of remorse. Sin and rebellion against God was so deep-seated and so deceptive in them that there was still no remorse in them at all, and they would rather curse God. And in this way, too, the Exodus plagues are still in the background here. Because intertwined, if you go back to Exodus, intertwined with the unfolding of all of these plagues in Egypt, what do you have? What's the repeated refrain in Exodus? And yet Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart and did not give glory to God. He did not repent or let the Israelites go. This is a sobering reality that we're about to see. In Romans 1, there's a... There's an important principle that is laid out about sin. And we're all sinners, so we need to hear. We need to listen to this. In Romans 1, it talks about how God has revealed himself clearly in nature. But people chose to worship the creature rather than the creator. People chose to worship the creation instead of the creator. And they, although It says in Romans 1, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And because they continued in that rebellion, because they continued in that um, unrepentance, three times it says in Romans 1 that God gave them up to continue in that rebellion. God gave them up. In other words... It literally says he gave them up to do what ought not to be done. In other words, when they, when they continued in their hardness of heart, there came a point when God hardened them further in their rebellion against him. It happened with Pharaoh. It happened in Romans 1. And I think it's happening here in Revelation 16. How so? Well, I said that we would come back to this weird scene in the sixth bowl, and I think that's where we see it. So think carefully with me here. We're told twice. We go to the sixth bowl. We're told twice already prior to the sixth bowl. In verses 9 and 11, we're already told twice that the people cursed God and did not repent. So they are already hardening their own hearts. They're already cursing the name of God. They're already hardening themselves in their unrepentance. And then in the sixth bowl, we meet in verse 13, the threefold enemy of God. The dragon, that is Satan himself. It says the beast, which we met two beasts a couple of chapters ago. That's the beast here, I think is that first beast, which I thought at that time represented oppressive governments. And then it says the false prophet. I actually think the false prophet here is that second beast, which represented uh, 
deceptive philosophies. And it says, verse 13, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits, like frogs. And in verse 15, or, or excuse me, verse 14, these unclean spirits, we are told, are demonic spirits. In this, and if you're looking, if you, if you remember when we read the whole chapter at once, in this sixth bowl, what happens as a result of these demonic spirits coming out of the false prophet? What happens as a result in the sixth bowl is all the enemies of God, they come together. They come together to fight against God in the battle of Armageddon, which for them will be a futile and losing battle. You see what it says. Out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits. They are demonic spirits performing signs. In ver- by the end of it, in verse 16, they all assembled themselves at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So the false prophet says these things that are demonic spirits. People believe it, and they harden themselves further against God, and they gather together at a place called Armageddon to do battle against the Lord. In other words, these, these demonic spirits coming from the false prophets simply hardened the unrepentant in their rebellion against God. question then is, why do these demonic spirits come out of the mouth of the false prophet? Verse 13 gives us the answer when it says, again, they come out of his mouth like frogs. It's an odd image if taken literally, but it's not meant to be taken that way. What is that symbolically conveying to us that this is happening as a plague sent from God? This is happening to them as a plague sent from God. Remember, this is happening as a sixth bowl of judgment from God. In other words, the judgment on them here is God giving them up in their deception to harden them further in their rebellion that their judgment might fully come at Armageddon. Tom Schreiner in his really he's got a really good commentary on on Revelation. He said he 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 likens this event if you if you're a uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might remember this. If you're in a Bible reading plan, just keep going. Hang with it till you get to 1 Kings 22. You'll, you'll come across this story. 1 Kings 22, when the Lord, it says very literally, the Lord sent a lying spirit to King Ahab. He, through, through the mouth of, of, uh, of the prophet, he sent a lying spirit through the prophets to the wicked King Ahab so that Ahab would believe what they said, would go into battle, and there die as God's judgment on, them, on him. And in the same way here, the Lord gives up his unrepentant enemies to believe what is false, remain hardened in their rebellion, so that they will most surely face his judgment in the end. This is not something we should pass over lightly or ignore. This is a sobering word. Sin can produce in us an absolute refusal to repent. Because it also produces in us an absolute deception that we even should. And God is just. If we would continue in that hardness of heart, He is just 
to turn us over to the desires of our own heart. You made your bed, now lay down in it. And note here how final and fixed God's sentence on them is at this point. When it tells us in verse 13 that even the dragon, that's Satan himself, is included in this judgment. Satan is not dumb. Satan knows what his end will be. He knows it will not end well for him. And yet because God sent this delusion on them, he, along with all the others, gather together for this one last battle, futile battle, against the Lord. Sin is irrational. And we are foolish indeed if we don't feel we are prone to being deceived by our own sin. And even growing hardened by it. If we don't stay in the word of God and all the other means of grace that God has granted to us, the fellowship of the church and, and prayer and, and the word to wage war against our sin. This battle of Armageddon, it's, 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 it's named here. It's going to be described twice more, more fully in chapter 19, verses 11 through 19, and again in chapter 20, verses 7 through 9. You say, why is it, why is it described so many times? Because Revelation is cyclical. It's telling the same thing all over, over and over again. So we'll come across it again and have more to say about it. But so far we have seen the completeness of God's judgment coming with the bowls of his judgment poured out at the second coming. We've seen the justice of God's judgment against, against those who refuse to repent when opportunity was there. And he, as he hardens them in, in the rebellious path they've chosen, which inevitably leads to, leads to their condemnation. But before the chapter ends... It officially brings us to the end of all things. And we need to say a word quickly about the victory of Christ laid out for us in the seventh bowl. The last paragraph makes clear that Jesus wins. In the seventh bowl being poured out, verses 17 to 21, and they describe the second coming of, of Jesus. Jesus has already broken in, by the way. He already broke into the description of the sixth bowl in verse 15 to say, hey, I'm I'm coming like a thief. I'm about to come. Stay awake. I'm coming soon. And it's in the seventh bowl that he does come. Um, and his coming is described. His, 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 if you read this, his second coming spells the end of history when the final judgment will be fully meted out. This is clearly the end of all things. I mean, <laughs> verse 17 says, the voice of God comes from his throne in his temple, and he says, it's done. It is done. The same thing that Jesus will say in chapter 21 when he's bringing about a new heavens and a new earth. It's done. And verse 20 describes the, the scene and it says, Every island fled away. Mountains were not, no longer to be found. Clearly, as we've seen, the, these bowls associated with the second coming of Christ are, are so cataclysmic they are undoing of all creation some some believers well-meaning and and they might be right I, I might be wrong but some believers believe that when christ returns he will reign on this earth for a, a thousand years i find that hard i find that hard to square with passages like this that may make it hard to conceive that when he comes that's the end the islands fled away. There is no more sea. It's gone. Final judgment. 
But when Christ returns, verse 19 says that unbelievers be made to drink and even drain the cup of the wine of the fury of the wrath of God. And isn't that sobering in verse 19 when it says, God remembered Babylon. What's he remembering? He's remembering all the deeds so that judgment is fully meted out. <clears throat> and even still, they curse him. In, in, in the later sections, there's going to be much more description of the blessed state of the redeemed forever when Christ returns. But clearly, here in, verse, in chapter 16, the focus is almost entirely on the just judgment of the wicked. And so that's what we're led to consider here most. I mean, the last words of the chapter are of the wicked still cursing God, though they will still bow and confess Jesus is Lord. So as we close, I think about this. This chapter is insistent that, that we understand how hardening unrepentant sin is to our hearts. And that that should remind you then of how it is a mercy of God that anyone repents and believes in the first place. When you see in this chapter the immovable hardness of sin, it shows you that the repentance and faith exercised by a sinner in salvation is a miracle of God. If you see your sin for what it is and you hate it, and if you love the Lord God and desire to be more like Christ, fall down in grateful praise and thanksgiving. Because if this chapter teaches us anything, it is that we cannot create that in our own hearts. We don't even want to. We don't even want to. When God saves a sinner, He doesn't just save that sinner from a penalty. He saves that sinner from himself or from herself. He saves us from where we were inevitably headed. And that does a lot to explain why one of the most common refrains in the book of Revelation is the acclamation that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It adds a, a great depth to the truth that Jesus saves. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I um, I, am, I am grateful for this word. I I prayed and I acknowledged at the beginning Revelation is hard to understand. It is, uh, it is much easier to read Romans 1 and have the Apostle Paul just very plainly spell out to us and God gave them up to the lusts of their own hearts and God gave them up in the impurity of their own hearts to do what ought not to be done. God gave them up. It takes a little more effort, Lord, for us to to read and see that same thing in demonic spirits coming out of the mouth of the false prophet like frogs. But it's there. Lies and deception coming out of his mouth and as a judgment from your hand, they believe it. Sin hardens us. We're so easily deceived. We're so easily hardened and numbed by our own, uh, our own sin. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, well, first of all, I pray that you would give us thankful hearts 
if we are if we see our sin for what it is, if we have repented of our sins and given our, our, our life to Christ, I pray that you would give us thankful hearts for that, knowing that we didn't do that to ourselves. <coughs> the reason we believed and someone else didn't is not because we're better. It's because of your mercy on us. And I pray that you would cause us to be all the more active in fighting against the sin of our own hearts in the future because knowing that even in Christ um, we are prone to being deceived by our own sin prone to being hardened by our own sin Lord I pray that you help us to take these things seriously I, I, I prayed at the beginning not only give us minds to understand and eyes to see give us hearts to embrace whatever it taught us to embrace Give us wills to obey whatever it admonishes us to do. I echo that prayer again today. In Jesus' name, amen.